0: Hello and welcome to the Tech TechDirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Uh, this week, as we've done occasionally, we're actually going to play a panel uh, that I was on recently. This one was recorded at uh, Mozilla's offices in San Francisco. Um a week or so ago, uh, and it was a panel that was hosted by Renee DiResta, who we've had on the podcast in the past. Uh, She is a Mozilla fellow and is working on a bunch of different issues, generally around um, disinformation online. Um, And so she hosted it and moderated uh, the panel, which was officially entitled Free Speech. What is it and who is responsible? Uh, and the panel itself was actually just Uh, two people besides Renee and that was myself and then Guillaume Chaslow from Algo Transparency and we actually between the three of us I think had a really good and sort of fun discussion on um, the challenges around content moderation and platforms and all of the different issues around that Uh, and uh, since it was an interesting and fun discussion uh, we asked if we could put on the podcast and everyone was cool with it so uh, that's what you're about to hear thanks. The world is increasingly technological So we have better get methodical Bringing precision to critical digital journalism With the singular vision of a modern monocle Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us Facing and taking on all the play tricks paid to troll Document the ways that they aim to take control Scrutinize and lies and make them fold and If we don't stand up to them someone will get hurt To so grab a shovel and dig up the tech If we don't stand up to them someone will get hurt To so grab a shovel and dig
1: Thanks so much for joining us. I'm really excited to uh, have this conversation. Um, When we discussed uh, this topic, I thought, you know, I know two people who would be really great for this. Um, Guillaume, who I know in the context of Center for Humane Technology, um, and had actually met him when I read his work on YouTube's recommendation engine algorithm, some work that he did for The Guardian, about um, recommendation engines pushing people towards particular types of content and how algorithmic, how engaging with certain types of content actually kind of privileges um, more sensational content over things that we might consider uh, better information as opposed to just content. And then Mike and I um, met years ago, uh, I think in the context of (laughs) a DMCA takedown gone wrong, (laughs) and so we we have disagreed on many things over the years, but always very civilly. And so I really like the idea of uh, bringing him in and having a little bit of a debate, a little bit more of um, people who really disagree but have uh, strongly rooted uh, philosophical underpinnings to thinking about the speech infrastructure that we have, um, the relationships between speech and harassment, the relationships between uh, speech and amplification and algorithms. And so I'm very excited to introduce the two of them. And what we're going to do is, we're going to start by letting them actually introduce themselves and their work. So, we're just going to speak for a few moments about uh, what they focus on.
2: So, let Guillaume. So, yeah, I was an engineer at YouTube working on the recommendation AI. on now I built a uh, website called algotransparency.org uh, that helps people understand what AI is actually uh, recommending uh, in terms of uh, conspiracies. on we often notice that uh, fiction uh, outperforms reality uh, from the AI point of view.
0: Okay. Um, Mike Masnick, um, so I run a blog called Tech Dirt, where I write about a lot of this stuff. Um, I also run a related think tank called the Kopi Institute, where we do a bunch of research uh, and hold events related to this. Um, on the, this issue, I, I'm, I've have a lot of very strong opinions concerning uh, free speech and technology and how innovation plays into uh, both enabling uh, greater speech, but then also understanding the consequences of that.
1: Can we swap this mic out? One of the things I wanted to, um, I'd love to have you start with, Mike, is you recently wrote a post about um, ways not to be a... A free speech jerk, I think you called it, or something along those lines. I, I thought I, I
0: think it was hypocrite. hypocrite. Was there?
1: Okay. <laughs> um, and I thought this is an interesting framing, kind of in the modern era, by someone who understands algorithms, understands technology, and has very strong thoughts about um, how not to be a free speech hypocrite. I'd love you to just kind of tell the audience a little bit about how you see the sort of very basic, uh, at a very basic level, what free speech is today and how that might have changed.
0: Uh, that's a very broad question. Um, so, um, I mean, free speech as a concept I think is pretty straightforward, um, you know, generally speaking uh, when you're talking about free speech in, in the American context, certainly you're talking about the First Amendment and whether or not the government can, you know, uh, have any regulations against uh, that that get in the way of your speech or expression. Um, and Um, and what is interesting nowadays is that obviously we have the internet which at a first pass enabled much greater communication and much greater speech much greater expression globally Um, and um, it you know uh, as an initial reaction I think many of us thought that that was a really good thing many of us still think that was a really good thing uh, as a network to allow for such great incredible global communication. Um, I think what has happened in the last few years is that there's been growing concern, uh, whether legitimately or illegitimately, that um, a number of very large companies um, have created platforms that, you know, that have basically taken over the role of um, being the, the, the you know, uh, platform on which that speech occurs. And with that has come a, a bunch of... Um, Good things and bad things. I think is the the, the diplomatic way of putting it. Uh, you know, when you have obviously Facebook, Twitter, YouTube um, being sort of the main ones, but there are a few others. Um, those platforms have become the space where where all of much of the speech is happening, um, and that has opened up both good things and bad things. Again, you know, one is that it has. You know, allowed for people to communicate around the world, world that had never communicated before, um, and sometimes, you know, that's good. But it also has allowed for harassment, spam, um, fake news—if you want to use that term, though I hate it—but everyone understands it, so we'll use it for shorthand, um, and and other sorts of, you know, scams and and whatnot. And then, so the question that has now come out that a lot of people are discussing is, you know, what does this mean when we have so much speech enabled by platforms, um, what does it mean when there is bad speech on that platform? And bad is a very, very loaded term. Any other term I would use there is equally, if not more loaded. Um, So again, using it for the sake of shorthand, everyone sort of understands what what you mean by that. Um, And so there's one element that says, there's all this speech on these platforms. These platforms have central control over what appears on those platforms. Uh, In the U.S., certainly those platforms also have a First Amendment right themselves to determine whether or not um, they allow any speech on their platform or disallow any speech on their platform. They are allowed to to make those moderation choices. Um, And so then there just becomes a question of, of what should be done about, if anything, about bad speech um and that's where i think the larger debate then comes in should those platforms be determining what speech is allowed what speech should be taken down um should there be laws involved in you know getting in you know uh, telling the platforms what should be allowed what should not be which runs into some first amendment questions um there are questions about you know are there alternative ways to um to allow for you know Increasing the good speech and decreasing the bad speech. What are the the unintended or intended consequences of all of those things? Um, and it's something that I think everyone is or should be thinking about and, and struggling with right now because I don't think there are necessarily easy answers. I have strong opinions on, you know, why certain things will will create all sorts of you know potentially bad consequences that we haven't necessarily thought through. Um, but I think. What should be clear, and what hopefully most people would agree on, is that there aren't any easy answers to this. And any sort of attempt to, um, you know, to, to deal with these challenges introduces a whole bunch of new questions. And so, you know, my general position on this is that we should be very, very careful before, um, you know, mandating certain certain results because it creates a whole bunch of other consequences.
1: Now, Guillaume, I'd love you to walk through as you do the work that you do at Algo Transparency. Attempts to kind of quantify some of those consequences, right? To look at the bad speech that Mike was describing and to look at the downstream effects of algorithmic amplification, of algorithms deciding what is raised or lowered, uh, and then what we see uh, the kind of downstream impact of that. I'd love to hear you describe a little bit more about the work that you do scoping the problem.
2: Exactly. So I think it starts from a misconception is that. Um, with social media, like uh, some politicians have said that the information goes directly to the people, and that's not true uh, the algorithm go, uh, the algorithm filter all the information that comes to you and decide which information you should see and which information you shouldn't see so it's very important to understand how this filter works because I, w- I worked on them and um, that they are not uh, neutral they are, uh, have some bias uh, depending on how they were implemented uh, and it's okay that they have bias, but we, we, should, we should see which kind of bias they have.
1: And how do you, uh, specifically since most of us here are in tech, I'd love to hear you describe a little bit about um, how you are working to quantify that, both the bias and then the impact. So,
2: so the idea is to reverse engineer uh, the algorithm, like try to understand uh, what gets amplified by the algorithm and uh, what's not amplified. Um, so, for instance, uh, on YouTube, you can follow the recommendation and see uh, which videos uh, get recommended to you by, by the algorithm. And you, when you compare that to uh, what gets shown in search results, you see uh, the impact of the algorithm. Uh, and you see that this algorithm is, of course, uh, not neutral, and uh, it's important to understand in which direction.
1: Can you talk a little bit about any of the specific factors um, that are influencing that? I know what I've seen is um, accounts like I, I look at propaganda a lot. And we see RT kind of constantly coming up to the top largely because they have a very strong base of extremely highly viewed videos from back in 2014, 2015 time frame. So they have a lot of um, what we call like disaster porn. Uh, videos of the tsunami that have been viewed 70 million times, or if you go and pull it up, you'll see the last comment was an hour ago, even though the video is from 2013. So things that continue to reinforce the idea that RT is producing compelling content that people watch the whole way through and then uh, engage with. I'm curious what other signals you see. Uh,
2: Yeah, so so to understand that, uh, this uh, kind of porn that you said is—you um, have to understand that the algorithm is developed to maximize watch time. So YouTube talked about that uh, publicly and said, "Okay, watch time is amazing because uh, if you wouldn't be happy with what you have, you would leave, wouldn't you?" Um, and that's debatable. But then it it favors all this kind of clickbait, uh bait, uh, disaster porn, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So then. Um, in terms, it it favors people who really understand the algorithms and know how it works, so they know exactly how much uh, uh, cats you have to put on, how much uh, disaster you have to put on, on to try to create the perfect clickbait and then bring uh, your users to your content and then uh, push uh, propaganda in, in the amount, uh, in the perfect amount.
1: So, Mike, when we think about... Um... Impact and the you know Guillaume's work on um, three degrees of Alex Jones or um, you know a number of the other kind of uh, things that we see this sort of constantly surfacing. Do you have an opinion on the um, the value of the uh, of the content that the platforms show? Or do you think that that's entirely too prescriptive a way to to think about this conversation?
0: Uh, I'm not sure, entirely sure I understand the question. What do you what do you mean? So,
1: so I mean um, the. Algorithm privileging the sensational over, uh, over a more, um, perhaps if we were searching for a current event, a more newsworthy. And, and I think that my belief, and I don't know if you agree with this, is that there is such a thing as a higher caliber source. I, I don't like the relativistic nonsense that, so that this is my own personal take, that, that all sources are created equal. That's not true. Yeah. And so when we think about the algorithm privileging sources that create sensational content, um, how, how do we think about that in the yeah. balance of, of the value?
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I think our views are actually probably a lot more aligned than, than you you may have set up the conversation <laughs> to, to suggest. Um, no, I, I think, obviously, you know, you talk about algorithmic bias, right? I mean, an algorithm... You know, has to have bias, right? I mean, it's recommending something, therefore it is biasing some content one way or the other. Um, you know, the question is, you know, what what is that bias? Which gets to the transparency question, and 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 what kinds of things are you trying to recommend? Um, you know, and a lot of the platforms right now have built algorithms that, as far as we can tell, and you may have more much more insight into this than I do, are sort of biasing on engagement, loosely defined, and and. That does not necessarily mean good, right? I mean, so a lot of the stuff that that we see and sort of you know becomes the stories that that we all talk about, where you're seeing like you know Alex Jones constantly recommended or um, you know so to take a little step outside, and then I'll get back to the, to the the specific question. You know the the um, that piece that I wrote about the free speech hypocrite was specifically around this guy Jordan Peterson, who is a sort of fairly well known. I'm, I'm not going to come up with the, the right diplomatic word to describe him. Um, yeah. Right, well, I call him a free well, speech hypocrite. So... Um, <laughs> You know, and and you can go and read why I think he's a free speech hypocrite. Um, But, you know, in writing about him, I first wrote about him a few months ago. um, And in order to do that, because he is sort of ever-present on YouTube, uh, I watched a couple of his videos, or more than a couple of his videos, but I was understanding, you know, what he was talking about and and looking for examples to use in the article that I was writing about him. And then ever since then, um, you know, the, the recommendations on, on my YouTube include Jordan Peterson videos, because apparently he has done approximately 3 million videos on YouTube, and you're also, according to his fans, not supposed to comment on anything he says until you've watched all of those 3 million videos, which YouTube now wants to make sure that I do, because it's always recommended. Um, so, but I, I think that ties back to the question that you asked, which is that there are sort of, you know, better and more relevant sources, and I think right now that these platforms are definitely keyed towards, you know, what is going to get the click, right? And so it's it's sort of, you know, the next general evolution of what used to be referred to as clickbait, yeah. um, is that you're looking for something that is going to get attention, and obviously these platforms have sort of keyed off of that. And you can understand why. Like, it's a natural progression. It wasn't sort of uh, a, a negative or, or evil reason for this. To, well, some people may argue otherwise. But I, I think there's a natural uh, reason for it. Um, where it then gets tricky is if you aren't going to key off of that for the algorithm, what do you key off of? And so you can say, um, well, we should sort of... Uh, pre-designate a white list of these are high quality sources, and you can determine what those might be, New York Times, whoever else, right? You're always going to then lead to a few different potential problems with that. One is that um, there are going to be a group of people out there who insist that the New York Times is fake news. I don't know who would say that, but they they (laughs) may be the President of the United States. Um, You're going to have some people who also point out that there are other sources, you know, part of the power and wonder of the open Internet was the fact that, you know, you didn't have to get published in the New York Times to, right. to publish a, an interesting, thoughtful, important Uh, piece of work and get attention for it. And so you worry about if you are specifically whitelisting out or biasing sort of predetermined credible sources that you are then downplaying and potentially harming those other voices that many of us think are important. Um, And so it, it becomes a really difficult situation. Now, you know, I agree and I can look at something and I can look at, you know, YouTube recommending Jordan Peterson videos or Alex Jones videos and say guys, like, I, I don't want this. And there are some not not very well-known, not necessarily easy-to-find tools that allow you to say, like, hey, no, stop. You know, I watched this for one thing. Go away. I don't ever want to see it again. It would be nice if we saw more of that. Um, and then the the sort of other thing that I've been talking about a lot lately um, is that I think we should push a lot more power to, to the end users in terms of tools to make those determinations themselves, for them to say publicly like, you know, if it's a situation where like I had to watch these videos, I don't want any more recognitions of it, let me designate that in a way that, that can be shared, or even better, if you can structure it so that you know if I trust somebody else, or I trust a group of other people to manage uh, a filter or some sort of view into the content that I want to see, um, you know, I I think we should have more of that. So instead of just relying on the platforms themselves to make those decisions, um, you know, if I could, you know, have a group of friends or or an organization that I trust and say, I want to see the YouTube filter that... EFF puts together or the ACLU or whoever else, um, you know, I think that would be a lot more valuable than just relying on YouTube specifically to make all the determinations globally for the filter that everyone has to use in terms, of, or the, the algorithm that everybody has to use in terms of which content is good and which is bad.
1: This is sort of the, um, where do we put the paternalism? Like, where does the nudge go? How far down in the in the, in the user value chain? I, you've written about this as well. I know you have a lot of strong thoughts on giving users more control of their experience. I'd love you to
2: talk about that. Exactly. That's something we, we need. But uh, for Google, it's, it's very tricky to do that. So I tried to do that uh, inside Google, actually. Uh, and I noticed uh, how much, like... Um, it gets tricky when you want to push that kind of uh, tools to production because uh, there's, of course, uh, managers are scared that it would decrease watch time uh, or that it would just not increase it. So it, it's not it's not the focus uh, of YouTube. The focus is to increase watch time. So developing these kind of tools uh, that enable people to get outside their filter bubble to not see uh, the same content over and over again when they don't want to see it. Like, for instance, right, right. I, I
1: want to actually ask about that really quickly. If we give people control, we effectively give them their filter bubble, right? that that's, I think that that's pretty well documented in psychological research. So people are going to choose to see the things that make them happy, which is what the platforms are king off of now automatically. So this is where I, I do kind of—I'm curious about the idea that putting the paternalism down and the, you know removing it entirely, giving it to the user, does just mean that there are going to be people who are... Um, you know, Alex Jones and um, Jordan Peterson are all that they see, and maybe that's fine. It's more a matter of, is, is there a, um, we used to have an idea that there was like a shared epistemology or like a core basis in fact, and, and, and I do wonder if you give it entirely to the user and, and empower them, if you're also in some ways disempowering them by, by virtue of allowing them to live solely in that bubble.
2: I mean, it's already like that. They're already stuck into filter bubbles of uh, drinking game videos, Jordan Peterson, uh, Alex Jones. It's 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 already like that. If we give them a tool to, to get out of that, uh, uh, it's difficult to to do something worse than uh, what's going on right now. No, I actually agree. I mean, we we to
0: some we are already in that world, and and, okay. and and I've heard this argument a lot, and and it may be it may be true that that you know pushing the power out to the ends and giving the end users more control maybe creates greater filter bubbles, though it would be difficult. Um, but I, I think it's worth testing that theory because I don't think it's necessarily true. It might be, and I'm willing to, you know, we should run an experiment and we should watch and we should monitor and see what happens. And if it, you know, if, if it goes wrong, like be ready to, to deal with it. But I'm not sure that's really what, what happens uh, in the end. I think that you know part of the problem now and the reason why we end up with these sort of weird bubbles of insanity as we're seeing is that we're trying to build these algorithms for everyone right and and we're having one party build these algorithms for everyone if we are able to push the control out to the end and and again like i, I want to emphasize that doesn't just mean the end user themselves making all the decisions themselves because then the pushback is nobody's going to do that I mean, very, very small percentages. But what I'm talking about is if we can push the control out so that not just the end users can make decisions, but also other third parties, what I said before, you know, if if somebody could use the EFF's filter or the ACLU's filter or some other third party, some trusted third party or, you know, person, the idea being that you could share these things, that actually allows for competition at the the algorithm or filter level. Um, And competition generally tends to build out better results. And I think that if you can do that and allow for this competition to happen for how we filter or, or recommend certain content, we will get better results than just relying on the single source, which is the platform itself, which has you know certain things to key off of. And because of that, I think there will always be some people who want to live in the crazy nut job filter bubble. Um, and that may happen. But I, I actually think we are less likely to get the general population to, to be sort of forced into those, those realms as well because people will nav- naturally sort of gravitate towards you know better algorithms, better filtering that is more reasonable and not so crazy. That may be a very naive, optimistic viewpoint on how people will react, but I, I tend to think that, that that's actually a likely outcome. Let 's talk
1: really briefly then about time horizons, so we have um, in the you are both in agreement that we have problems today. I agree with you both on that um, what is the Short-term fix, while the longer term sounds like you're both advocating for more granular user controls. You maybe have an idea of how long it actually takes to implement that. I do not, um, but but I'm curious, like in the kind of immediate short term, who comes in and steps in, and then looking out at a longer horizon, especially when we talk about the difference between regulation, self-regulation, uh, building tools for users. Like, how do you guys see the different solutions across time horizons?
2: So I think yeah, in the short term, uh, it's important to monitor wh- what's actually going on. Because in the 2016 election, for instance, you had uh, two sex scandals um, that happened. You had like Hollywood Access Tape and you had Pizzagate. And actually, Pizzagate was uh, recommended much more than Hollywood Access Tape uh, on YouTube. So you had like uh, a complete alternative reality that uh, unfolded and nobody even knew about it. Like most people didn't even know about about that so what's actually going on right now uh during the election we don't we don't know so the first thing uh, immediate term is to look uh what's going on uh, on the platform what gets pushed by the algorithm and, and then on the long term i totally agree with your vision of trying uh, new systems that gives uh more control to end users and to third party who are uh, dedicated to protecting the user so if if uh, the people who uh, you trust who are actually there to to protect you uh, it's going to be much better than if you have a company that wants to maximize uh, profit on uh, uh, metrics um, on a quarterly basis
1: and do you think that this has a positive impact then on the allegations of conservative bias? you think that the transparency is a fix yeah. for that
2: so, so it's go- going to help uh, going to help Google because. What's going on right now is that Google can't even reply like, no, we don't have a conservative bias because they don't want to, 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 say, to, to say what's recommended. So Jordan Peterson, for instance, who has been like, uh, insanely recommended, he has been viewed more than, uh, uh, more than 250 million times uh, on his channels, on videos that uh, have his name in the title. Uh, he's been recommended more than a billion times by the algorithm. Uh, and then he can you he can imply that he's being censored by, by the platform because there is no, no data about it so so I have a bit of data about it, and I see that he's massively uh, recommended so
1: and then for the longer term as we as we think about the fact that there are these tensions with the business model, um, there are these uh, these the sort of unwillingness to be transparent, which maybe is shifting. Maybe I think we've seen a little bit more of that, particularly from Facebook, the transparency reports and things that Twitter has put out. Um, how do you see the role of regulators? I know you've both written and talked extensively about uh, CDA Section 230, which for anybody who isn't familiar with it is the um, the kind of carve-out that offers the platforms um, the right to moderate but also indemnifies them from liability, that is the uh, intermediary liability, doctrine that says that they are not responsible for what is on their platform. There have been carve-outs to it recently in the form of SESTA and FOSTA. Um, which you've written quite extensively about as well, as a um, strongly opposed to it, <laughs> um, sort of unintended consequences that I think did sort of fall out of, of that particular piece of legislation. But um, Senator Wyden, who is one of the authors of the original Communications Decency Act back in 98, I believe, um, has recently come out saying that this was not the intent. The indemnification intent was not to absolve them of their responsibility to moderate. So as we talk about speech, one of the big things that's, that's been alluded to a couple times, harassment, um, fake news, a number of these things, the platforms have the right to moderate but have not necessarily been proactive in moderation because there has been no um, consequences for them to not be more active. So you've each. I'd love for you each to just kind of state your own position rather than me putting words in your mouth <laughs> about what you think of where that conversation is going. Yeah,
0: so, so there's there's a lot to unpack there, and it's it's a really interesting discussion. Well, for me, it's an interesting discussion. I don't know for anyone else, but, um, you know, CDA 230 has sort of two components, and, and um, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people didn't necessarily pay attention to the second one. The first part was basically saying that the platforms are not responsible for anyone's speech on that platform. That's the part that's really been litigated the most um, and has been really important, basically, you know, and conceptually, sort of makes sense. I think from a common sense standpoint, it says if you, um, you know, if somebody posts something to your website, you're not legally liable for it if it's defamatory or, or, uh, you know, whatever, my whatever sort of tort it might violate. Um, then the second part is that you are not liable for um, moderation choices, and this actually was. The reason why CDA 230 was written in the first place was there was this case, the uh, Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy, where um, you know this this Wall Street operation—I would say use that loosely—it's uh, it, the the firm that was um, uh, the the movie Wolf of Wall Street was based on—got um, very upset that somebody had posted in a Prodigy stock trading forum or something, you know, accused them of being up to no good, which in retrospect appears to have perhaps turned out to be true, uh, and they sued Prodigy, and part of the argument was that because Prodigy moderates its forms somewhat, anything it allows up, therefore it is also liable for, uh, and the court said, yeah, sure, uh, which, you know, if you take a step back, is, it could be kind of horrifying, because that means any if you moderate at all, you will then be Uh, liable for the moderation choices you did not make. Um, And so the incentives there then are to allow no forums or to be very very aggressive in taking down content. Anyone complains, you immediately take it down because you don't want to be liable for for any sort of legal dispute. Um, And so, you know, I think we can say that that has established the norm that allowed for all these platforms to allow people to speak online, which which is super important. Um, But Somewhere along the way, some people may have forgotten that. <laughs> uh, and there was this article in Wired recently about like, the last two years of Facebook and sort of the struggles that Facebook has gone through. And one of the things that, that I found infuriating, infuriating was that uh, that article said um, you know, within Facebook, they decided not to take these issues, uh, not to get heavy handed in moderating content on their platform because they believed if they did so they would lose their cda 230 immunity which is the exact opposite of what the law says and and the article says it a few times and i sort of snapped at, at nicely snapped at the the people who who wrote it saying you know this is this is exactly backwards and you're you're sort of peddling this myth and the feedback that i got from multiple people was not so much that Wired got it wrong, which they did, but that it was an accurate portrayal of what people within Facebook believed. That the what, what, and it's still not entirely clear who, whether it's the legal team or the policy team or whoever, sort of pushed out a message within Facebook that if we moderate too much, then we will become liable for our moderation and we will lose 230 practices. Now, there is, there is a, version of that that is slightly more forgivable than that version which is totally wrong which is that facebook is a global company cda 230 is only u.s based uh, and outside the u.s that is somewhat true in some places with caveats depending on on what you're doing so facebook could say uh, you know since we reach globally we should hold a standard globally and that standard is we should be very careful about what we moderate for fear of then being liable perhaps outside the U.S. Uh, for, for this. So anyways, t- t- sorry, I'm very long-winded here. But um, to, to bring that back around, all of these attempts to sort of change CDA-230, which is seen as like the way in to regulating these platforms, um, I think ends up making all of these situations worse. Um, and I, I don't yet see a way to to change CDA-230 that actually improves any of the problems loosely defined that people are trying to attack, and almost every one of them, I think, makes them worse. Again, if you're changing the standard of being liable for moderation, um, then you're going to lead to, you know, one, companies not willing to host other people's speech at all, uh, because the fear of liability could be pretty significant, depending on where you are, and we saw after SESTA and FOSTA passed, certain sites completely shut down, other sites really greatly limited their content, and they've been, you know, really... Uh, taking down things that you know uh, appear to be perfectly legal, reasonable free speech, uh, and that should be a concern. Um, you know, the second part of it is that it will lead to just you know much greater ability to censor people um, for almost any speech. And we have a, a, a sort of um, alternative world history to look at, which is the DMCA world, right? So, CDA 230 does not cover intellectual property. Uh, in the copyright world, specifically, there's another law which is DMCA 512, which has different rules. CDA 230 is a pure immunity; you are not liable. Uh, DMCA 512 copyright is a notice and takedown setup. You have to, if you meet certain conditions, you are then put in the safe harbor. One of those conditions is if you receive a valid notice of infringing content, you need to take it down. Um, with Certain caveats in order to retain the, the uh, not being liable for that content. Um, and so, and what we've seen, and we have tremendous evidence of this, is that the DMCA process is, is used widely to censor stuff for reasons that have nothing to do with copyright infringement. But it is a tool to take content down, and therefore people do.
1: I'm also going to just, as a, as a quick interjection there, because I alluded to how we met, Yes, uh, which was when I was getting doxxed and stalked and harassed, and Twitter did nothing about my problems, and Twitter's own engineer told me, if you'd like to get pictures of your child taken down off the internet, which is what was happening to me, file the copyright claim, we'll have them down in 10 minutes. Meanwhile, I had waited 48 hours already for those to move through the nice normal harassment channels. So I think that one of the things here that, particularly in 2015 or 16 when this was happening to me, was that there was no sense that the platforms were going to take, do anything at all to help deal with things that were, uh, that that should have yeah. been taken down under violations, and so it is a matter of using whatever loophole you have at your disposal at that point to make the problem go away.
0: Yeah, and and I understand, and I, I can't remember if it was you who, who said this or, or somebody else. And I think it's a valid point, which is that if people are using your DMCA process to remove content for non-copyright purposes, you probably have a bigger problem in terms of your overall processes for handling, you know, abuse, harassment, or whatever else it is. You have have to, just, you know, as a platform, should shoulder some of that blame. Um, but you know that doesn't mean that we should, you know, set up another legal hole in which, you know, people can, you know, slip through. Because for, you know, for every case where you may have valid reasons for obviously wanting pictures of your children and and doxing information offline, you know, there are so many other cases of content, you know, being pulled down because of completely ridiculous you know, we've, you know, we receive all the time DMCA notices for articles about, you know, we had an article about somebody who was fined by the FTC for, you know, uh, for revenge porn. He had, put up a revenge porn site and got hit by the FTC, that individual then filed a copyright notice claiming that his name was copyright, you know, covered by copyright, and therefore we had to pull down our story. Google was supposed to remove it from their search. He wanted the FTC's own press release uh, pulled. I mean, that's sort of an extreme example, but there are a lot of other ones as well. You know, there was a story recently where, um, you know, somebody had uh, mocked a video game review on, on Twitter, and the the journalist who had written the original review used the DMCA to get that pulled off of Twitter. I mean, there's all sorts of examples of, you know, if you provide this tool that has legal weight behind it to get content pulled down, it it is used that way. And, you know... But it has transparency reports.
1: And I want you to, like, dive back into this one too. Just get in there. (laughs) Because you had some ideas for um, a
2: middle ground to... I, I think we have to... The that the CDA was voted like 20 years ago, when platforms were very different from when they are right now, they were not uh, recommending content. Now, platforms are not just hosting, they are also recommending. So, the right to be hosted is not the same than the right to be recommended. Sure. Um, and um, So, let's take a concrete example of something that has been recommended. That, uh, for instance, Barack Obama has been, was born in Kenya. Uh, something that, okay, uh, it's great that it's hosted on the platform that people can uh, uh, say whatever they want. But uh, when it's been recommended by YouTube's algorithm on which I worked more than 300 million times, you're more than the number of uh, Americans in the country, you, you realize, okay, there, there might be something out of control going on here. Um, so so at at some point... Uh, we need to know that it's, it's been recommended by the algorithm uh, so that we know uh, what, in which kind of reality we live in. Why, why are people really believing that? And it's because it's been recommended, not because they, they start to be crazy suddenly.
1: So, that you think the transparency around the. Um, I, I, you and I agree on this. I think the um, right to, you know, the free, freedom of speech is not the same as freedom of reach, right? You don't have the, the right to algorithmic amplification, you have the right to be discoverable for whatever crackpot theory you want to put out on the internet, but the you are not owed the amplification. And that's where we get it, the kind of curatorial function. Um, and you've been talking about how CDA 230 should be uh, potentially tailored to deal with that problem. Is that your current work?
2: Exactly. So um, so what we had in the old world of uh, news media, we, we know what gets recommended. We know what gets put on TV. We know what gets viewed by, by people. Uh, so right now we ought to know what gets viewed uh, uh, on YouTube, and uh, whether it's by uh, just YouTube users demanding YouTube to to show what they recommend to people, and uh, not what they recommend a few times, but what they recommend hundreds of millions of times, uh, or whether it's with legislation. At some point, we need uh, we need to know what's happening. Um,
0: and I'm all for. Greater transparency, with the the caveat that, um, you know, transparency potentially when you're talking about something around algorithms and recommendations, um, the reason why a lot of platforms have been fairly secretive is because, you know, a certain level of transparency also opens up the ability to game those systems, right? Which could potentially make the problem worse. So, I, and I, I'm, you know, I'm. It puts myself in a very uncomfortable position to ever argue against transparency. I'm a very strong advocate of more transparency, but I recognize where there is concern about you know, what kind of transparency and how it is revealed um, for the sake of avoiding this issue, which could actually make the problem worse.
2: But platforms are gamed. Uh, I mean, your work shows that. Um, uh, just Facebook the number of fake accounts that were uh, taken and shows that it has been game uh, and so so we have like uh, foreign agents who are extremely good at gaming the platforms uh, and uh, so we, so so they don 't need this transparency yes. they have, they reverse engineer the algorithm they understand the algorithm and, and they, they have an advantage because we don 't have transparency so transparency would help uh, uh, small creators small youtube creators to to get better. Than Russia today, uh, so I think that would be. Uh, I, I,
0: I, that's that's a fair point. I mean, if if it if it allows you know better people to game the system, then that that's great. But you know, my I, I, I I'm I I believe you, and I am willing to try it as an experiment. I just want to make sure that you know when you're talking about state actors or you know very powerful groups, especially ones that have experience sort of gaming that algorithm, you know potentially giving them that information, they're ahead of the game, and so I, I worry about it. I, I, I would like to believe that you're right, and um, again, I, I support transparency conceptually, and I would like to see that happen. I understand why there hasn't been as much transparency yet, and so that's that's where I come down on.
1: My feeling on that is um, we see a lot of changes being made in you know fighting the last war, litigating 2016, um, that are not actually going to do anything to stop a determined state actor. No, the ID checks for ads is one example. I think it net takes out a lot of spammers. I think it catches a lot of the the low rent two bit you know kind of shitty fake account makers and, and bad ad pages. But I don't think it gets Russian intelligence. They can print their own IDs. This is not this is not a real stopgap against uh, you know. Which is where I think that there is a, a thinking about the greatest impact and and where that you know what what kind of changes can be made to deal with the mid tier you know to <laughs> so, you know kind of we don't really know what the distribution looks like right now, and that's also a function of not having much transparency. Um, So I I do agree with the uh, transparency piece. And it sounds like you are more in favor of actually kind of regulatory, um, like lawmakers stepping in to intercede here, and you are more in favor of shifting norms. I'm curious how you shift norms, and also from you, uh, how you, you know, how how you think regulation happens in a locked Congress? Maybe we start with (laughs) <laughs>
0: the norms guy. <laughs> the norms guy. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, 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 you want to be clear. I don't think it's easy, certainly, to shift norms. Um, I think. It does happen, um, but it's usually not in a, a directed fashion, and so some of this is sort of screaming at the wind and hoping that it'll go in the direction that I scream. But um, you know, what I fear more is is the sort of unintended, or in some cases, intended consequences of trying to regulate this, especially by people who I don't think really understand, um, you know, how the technology works or sort of what will happen if they do this. And, and almost every statement by almost every you know, policy person thinking about regulating these things tends to get details, important details wrong. And so I'm very, very worried about that. Um, You know, the other thing that I'll say in terms of the norm side of it is that, you know, the internet space, if you go back over the past 25, 30 years, um, has shown some pretty massive disruption at times, you know, and You know, for a while I I point to this article from 2007, so 11 years ago, um, and I forget the exact title, but it was something to the effect of, um, you know, MySpace is a natural monopoly that will never be toppled. (laughs) That turned out to not be very accurate. Um, Did you write it? I did not write it. (laughs) I did not write it, but it it was an an interesting article, and it it mentions Facebook briefly. It's like, you know, this little piddly thing that will never have a chance against MySpace. Um, We we live in a a world where, you know, disruption happens. uh, New technologies come along, and sometimes it happens because the platform's Become a disaster, which you could argue was the case with MySpace. I mean, MySpace just became this really awful experience. Facebook, you know, uh, came in and completely wiped the slate with them, uh, in part by providing a better experience. Now, what is the better experience, and why and how um, is an open question. But could we live in a world where, you know, a new player comes along and says? you know, hey, I could build a better experience that doesn't have harassment and hate and all this kind of stuff. Or I could open up and, you know, set up a protocol system that allows for competition in terms of the algorithm and everything like that. Um, And, you know, maybe that begins to catch on or maybe it uses a different business model that isn't like suck up all your data and sell it to the highest bidder or however you want to put it. Um, You know, there are opportunities for, startups and new businesses to come in. There are some people who argue the existing providers are so big, have so much gravity that that is an absolute impossibility. Um, That's an open question. I don't think that's true. We've seen very big companies collapse before. I think we'll see it again. I think that Facebook, Google, Twitter, um, you know, I think they have some problems. I think that as such large organizations, they're not very good at reacting to stuff. Um, you know, they, they have certain elements are. I think, you know, Facebook has been pretty aggressive and sort of, you know, spending ridiculous amounts of money on any tiny company that looks like it might possibly have a chance of disrupting it. Um, and that's, you know, worth watching and seeing seeing if it, it's sort of blocking that that potential disruption. But I, I think that, you know, allowing for competition, allowing for new services to pop up, um, there's a chance that we could, you know, change the way these things work just through competition.
2: Yeah. So, so to be clear, I think like regulation is the worst possible option because mm-hmm. what, what you said, like politicians and uh, politicians don't understand what they are talking about. They don't understand all the consequences. Um, so it, it's a kind of last resort we we want. So, so what would be great is to have uh, discussion with platforms on try to have platforms like gives a minimum amount of transparency that guarantees us that we have, uh, we're in touch with reality, we know what, what's going on, and make it not, uh, the system not gameable. Uh, but if the, and I understand the platform don't have any incentive to do that. At some point, we, we need to, uh, to have regulation, because that's what happened with Libel. We have uh, regulation against Libel, because otherwise we would live in a constant fake news uh, environment.
0: Well, I'm not going to go down to the, the the question around defamation and, and libel, but um, you know what what I would say is that you know I think these companies are now facing greater and greater challenge. I mean, they're they're being slammed by the public, they're being slammed by politicians on sort of both sides of the traditional spectrum. They're getting attacked in all sorts of ways. They have incentives themselves to begin to think more carefully about how they handle this stuff, and I think you know. For all the talk uh, and, and claims that people make that these platforms don't care at all, uh, you know I, that's not true. Um, and far be it for me to be sort of a defender of any of these platforms because I, you know, I don't think they're very good at these things. But you know, I think they're recognizing more and more um, how important these issues are, and they are taking them seriously. They are also recognizing. Um, how difficult these, you know, these decisions are. You know, there, there have now been um, two different uh, content moderation uh, summit conferences, one uh, out here in California, one in D.C. There's another one in a couple of weeks in New York where these platforms are actually revealing for the first time uh, exactly what they're doing around content moderation, whereas before it was entirely a black box. I don't think they're necessarily revealing enough and they're not being as transparent as they hopefully, you know, could or should be. Um, but they, they are doing it. But, you know, the more you look at it, the more you realize how difficult and, and challenging these things are. Um, and, you know, like there was, there's, there's a new documentary, I think it's going to be shown on PBS soon called The Cleaners, which That's you awesome. and I both saw a screening of recently, which I think did a really good job of sort of highlighting how difficult content moderation is, um, that there aren't easy answers. There was also a Radio Lab episode recently that that was, I think, very effective in doing the same thing. And also um, Motherboard, uh, which is a publication uh, from Vice, um, did a really, really great, very thorough article in which some of the reporters actually got to spend time at Facebook in the meetings where they're discussing sort of the content moderation stuff. I think there's a greater and greater understanding that these are, are really difficult Decisions to make, um, but you know, I, I you know, and, and so it it, w- it would be great to you know uh, to I, I guess you know I, I think that there's there's enough public pressure that I'm hoping that either they will change or competition will spring up without necessarily needing to go down the route of, of regulation, which I think in in many cases the regulatory proposals will make the problem worse in that the only companies who can really abide by the, the type of regulation that's being suggested are those giant platforms. So if the idea is to limit the power of these platforms, you're actually getting the reverse because you're sort of locking
2: those in. Yeah, there's a, a lot of chances that will happen if the regulation is badly designed.
1: Okay, we wanted to uh, open it up for questions. Great.
3: Yeah. So. If you're in San Francisco, you can ask it in the room, we have a few that came over Slack, so we'll start with that, give folks in the room maybe time to think of a question. So, in Slack, this question, the first question is for you, Mike, Um, you mentioned that 230 would protect platforms, at least in the United States, um, when they moderate abusive content and fake news but often they don't. So are fake news and attacks um, on marginalized groups actually good business for the platforms? Is there an interest in why they aren't
0: doing it? Um, I, I I mean, you'd have to ask the platform specifically. I, I don't think so. I don't think that um, any of the platforms are saying, like, we should allow harassment and fake news and, and attacks on people because it's good for business. Um, I think that... You know, if you talk to the people who work at all of these platforms in sort of like the trust and safety uh, realm, all of them take that job very, very seriously. And all of them are very, very concerned about those kinds of things appearing on their platforms and and how do you deal with them. Um, I don't think they're treating it frivolously at all. Um, And, you know, I think... You know, it could go a long way towards, you know, getting people to understand that if there, there were more transparency or, you know, at events like these content moderation summits where those people speak out and you see what they're dealing with and you see the sort of challenges and how difficult some of these choices are, um, you know, but, you know, it, it's, it, is, it is a common accusation. I just, I just don't think it's, it's really accurate. Great. Um,
3: one more. Someone in the room asked this up. Oh, in the room.
1: Um very intrigued by the user controlled filter idea. And we've sort you talked about it a little bit as you know, you control all the content you see or as it currently is. Is there a hybrid model where you could control the concentration of what you've already seen before? So, you know, I want to see 70% of things I've already seen before and 30% fresh content, and someone could dial that up and dial it down?
0: Yeah, I, I mean I, I think again, you know, if you get to the point where you're dealing with you know, sort of open protocols where anyone can design the system for the view and create different tools for it. You know, I like to think of it similar to, like, email, right? I mean, email itself is is a protocol, and different, you know, you can communicate across different platforms, um, and then, you know, different people put their own spin on email. You know, a lot of people now use Gmail because they, they put a, a view onto email that was considered better than, than lots of other platforms, and they also had a good spam filter. But not everybody does, and you can shift, and you can communicate across those different platforms if you were to, to move to this world where you could open up Things as a protocol, and anyone could build a filter. One of the kinds of filters you could build is exactly that, which is you know the um, you know I, I you know I, I want to see certain things, but I, I, I want you know I I don't want to be stuck in my filter bubble. It, it's the anti-filter bubble filter, like you know, please pop in a few serendipitous bits of information and. That 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 might that might be really compelling, and, and therefore I think that's an opportunity for somebody to create a filter like that that says like I'm going to pop in something neat and useful right. that that wouldn't necessarily fall into into the filter bubble. I, I, yeah, sure, you could totally could that do that. it. I don't see how you would. The question was
1: regulation. Is yeah, that-
0: could could you regulate that? I don't see how you could regulate that reasonably, and and it would create all sorts of other questions uh, if you were to do that, because you would have a situation where, um, you know, uh, perhaps on on the flip side, where you you know, uh, you know, are you regulating that everyone who doesn't want to see fake news has to see thirty percent fake news? <laughs> uh, right? You know, you 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 open up all sorts of very questionable. Issues with that. So, I, I don't see how you would regulate that without very weird consequences coming out of it.
2: I yeah, t- so totally agree that the future is really uh, having more control. Uh, and that's how, how we get there. Uh, that's important. And for me, people need to realize how bad the current system is b- before they want to uh, install uh, something new. So, that's, that's why I'm focusing on that right now.
3: Okay. Another question, um, is it, uh, Renee, you actually pointed out that a lot of solutions um, for what we know is happening in 2016 um, are, oh yeah, a lot of the, the solutions were about 2016, but what is coming next? So can the panel weigh on in what is happening right now and the midterm elections and um, if regulation isn't the best approach, what things can we do to address the upcoming elections?
1: So I think there 's a, a difference between um, the idea of fake news and information versus uh, what we see you know most of the stuff that was put up by Russia in two thousand and sixteen would not have come down under any kind of content moderation framework short of authenticity, short of authenticity of account uh, and that 's because it was not highly sensational it was polarizing it was it was partisan. Uh, it was offensive at times, but, you know, there's no rules against offensiveness in, in, uh, in, in, in moderation like th- of that, to that mild extent. Um, so I think that what we look at is uh, authenticity of narrative and then distribution patterns. And that's really what, what at, you know, at New Knowledge where we build tools to look at the stuff, that's what we've chosen to focus on. The idea that it's not the content, this isn't a truth and narrative problem, this is much more of an authenticity of accounts and voices um, and the argument that we make is that it doesn't matter what message you're putting out there, if you're using sort of inauthentic means to do so, if you're manufacturing speech, so rather than one person, one voice, it's uh, one person with a botnet and then, you know, five people on the opposite side, then you're no longer really having an authentic uh, dialogue. And so should the platforms be doing more to capture uh, interference at, at those levels, much more kind of algorithmic signatures of, of, of malintent and distribution?
2: You could have third parties who who play this role can can
0: plug in. Yeah, yeah. And I think more directly to the question in terms of what's happening in two thousand eighteen, the answer is not enough. But um, more than happened in two thousand sixteen, you know, which is not a satisfying answer. uh, And you know, I would like for for there to be more evidence of 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 stuff happening. um, And you know, but part of this is the nature of the problem, which is that it's a difficult ever-changing problem and if you're just going after you know the last problem which is you know you can you can define what the what the old problem was to some extent and sort of try and target that but that misses whatever the, the new one is which just sort of highlights the the difficulty of the position that the platforms are in with the current setup where they're sort of the only source making the decisions on how to how to deal with the content
1: and what we see for people trying to get around the authenticity piece um, is that we actually see them engaging with real people and then laundering the narrative through real people, which makes it harder to find because it is going through a uh, real American voice. In some ways, it's actually a return to sort of the old, um, old intelligence methods, just like enhanced by the Internet, as opposed to uh, creation of a new collection of strategies designed for the Internet, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and, and one of the things that has to be noted, I mean, I think everyone rushes immediately to sort of you know, blame the technology for this. You know, there is an element of confirmation bias that drives much of this and sort of human nature. And, you know, if, if you know, people were better at critical thinking and not rushing to confirmation bias, that'd be great, but it's also impossible. And I think everyone, you know, even those of us who think about these things and deal with these things have to admit that we're guilty of confirmation bias and, uh, you know, ourselves and making mistakes and, and jumping to conclusions about things as well. And so, you know, I feel like, to some extent, you know, it's a little unfair to just blame these large technology platforms for surfacing the fact that humans are imperfect, um, because humans are imperfect.
2: Yeah, but, but they are not helping either. They are not like trained to help us. They, they know they yeah. know our biases. The, well, they they could do a better job. But they're, they're, I, at no
0: point am I suggesting that that they're doing the best job they possibly can. I think that. You know, they, there could be a ridiculous amount of improvement and they should do a lot more. But again, you know, I, I think that you get that by opening them up for more competition rather than expecting them to magically figure out these these difficult problems.
1: such a complicated topic. I think we've got like two minutes left. We didn't even really get at responsibility, right, which is, you know, such a core piece of this. And, you know, it, we touched on it briefly with the curation piece, I think, and the things that I've written before. and I think things that you've both written before about... Um, In my opinion, you do bear more responsibility when you are actively promoting the content. That's when you have switched uh, to taking a much more, um, you have some culpability for the downstream impact of what you've chosen to recommend as opposed to the search box returns, you know, Alex Jones.
0: Sure. I, I mean, I, 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 I I, I, no, I, I, I can't disagree with that. I mean, obviously, if, if you're doing the recommendation, you are choosing something to say, like I recommend this, and therefore you are putting your weight as the platform behind it, and that comes with some responsibility. Whether or not that's legal responsibility is a separate question, um, you know. But that's, you know, that's the nature of why, the, you know, these platforms have to figure out what how they want to deal with that, and. You know, recognizing that they're, they're all facing these really difficult challenges about how, you know, every solution leads to other problems. And so weighing those different things right now, they haven't necessarily done a good job. I'm not sure telling them you're responsible for this content changes that. So...
1: Well, and I think since we have to uh, wrap up, you've both done such an exceptional job with your writing, calling attention to the various facets of the problem and the nuance of the conversation. And I really appreciate all the work that you both do and are continuing to do. So, then thank you for participating.
0: Thanks, Ernie. Yeah, and thank you.
3: All right. If we could just advance the slide one, we're going to do a very brief announcement. Um, so you've raised a lot of issues around... Um, that many consumers have around just dialogue and getting proper information. And Mozilla is actually rolling some products out later this week to help people um, who may be getting information on the platforms or elsewhere just to to find more information and express um, what they're thinking about the election in a more safe way. So on October 4th, which is this week, on Mozilla.org, we are launching a special edition of Firefox. It's a bundle with um, something called Facebook Container, which lets you – go and speak your mind about the election elsewhere but Facebook won't necessarily know about it Um, and that will also be bundled with a tool from ProPublica that um, is a a crowdsourced tool that lets um, everyone who's viewing ads share what ads they're seeing so that there's a a public reference of which ads are being shown Um, we have other things that will also be on Mozilla.org later this week October 4th, Um, a tool to sorry Mozilla Corporation Corporation. so this this is All from Mozilla Corporation. Um, There will be a tool um, to let you look up your voter registration and register, and there will be curated content from Pocket to make sure that you get quality content. Um, A bunch of stuff. So do look out on October 4th on mozilla.org from Mozilla Corporation. Thank you.
0: If don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and dig up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and dig up
1: the tab.